may he be cursed. May he die if the covenant is violated. And you're thinking, like, you know, I know, does the Lord violate any covenants? No. No, he doesn't. Can't. But it's Can't. crazy. And I love how he uses this. As the New Testament teaches, the unthinkable happened at Calvary. When God was cursed and died for his people, God the Son was treated as a covenant breaker. And you know why? Because God the Son walked through the torches. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic reform tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same signup link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And this is a Promises and Fulfillment Season 3 episode. We're on chapter 21, which means it's episode 21, and it is on the chapter in the Covenant Theology book published by Crossway and written by faculty at Reformed Theological Seminary. And this chapter is called Ancient Near Eastern Backgrounds to Covenants, and it's written by Dr. J. Nicholas Reed. So we're going to go through this chapter. Peter and I will break it down here in a moment. Uh, just as normal, there are some reminders on our show notes. Not too much has changed. Same links as usual. There is the link to Crossway where you can pick up this book for yourself. And you probably should do it here soon. This chapter, this episode is the first one in part three, which is the final uh, third section of this book. And it is Collateral and Theological Studies. So we're going to be recapping about the next seven episodes. we got about seven episodes left in this season. So there's a link to Crossway. There's also a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters. So this is other like-minded podcasts where we're, we are a member of. There's a group of us. And if you enjoy our content, you're probably going to enjoy theirs as well. There's also a couple links to find a Reformed church near you to call home. So with that said, let's go in and talk about the topic. And I got, I got Peter Bell here. How you doing, Peter? <laughs> doing good. We're, uh, if you guys, I mean, you guys aren't watching this, so you guys wouldn't know this unless we one day put this onto YouTube, which is a potential in the future, but we're bootstrapping this episode because Nick's actually at his new place and we're trying to figure out where the best sound is. So if the sound is a little weird, it's because he's in a, an empty condo in an undisclosed location somewhere in Orange County. <laughs> and I can't find my microphone. Or I, actually, I do know where my microphone is, but I have an adapter for my microphone that goes to my laptop and I can't find it. <laughs> this is quite an episode. <laughs> yeah. So if you guys are complaining about this stuff, let me, uh, let me bring you back to episodes one through three. Listen to that audio. And then listen to this audio, and maybe you'll appreciate it a little bit more. You know that I think the Holy Spirit might be working with our podcast, knowing how terrible some of our sound has been through the through the months and last year. And we're still producing decent content, and people are still enjoying us. We haven't gotten too much negative feedback about our sound quality, but as you can hear, I'm in an echoey chamber yeah. called my new living room. Yep. Uh, you did before I hit record. You hit record. I was in a vacant bathroom, so I guess I upgraded. <laughs> I so I thought he was. I thought his uh, his laptop was on the toilet. <laughs> 
but it's well, even funnier. There's no toilet in his bathroom. Yet. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't on the toilet. Neither was my laptop. I That's was right. just well, sitting I'm in. I'm glad a... you weren't on the toilet when you were recording. <laughs> Me too. And uh, I was on the lawn chair and uh, you're like, no, the sound quality is not great. So I moved here in the living room. And uh, yeah, here we are. So we're going to be talking about this chapter and the extent of my knowledge on this topic. <laughs> yeah. Backgrounds. Limited to those 20 pages. Exactly. I mean, this is obviously I know what the ancient Near East is. I know what covenants are, but that was about the extent. And going through this chapter, I'm pretty much going to lean on you. <laughs> yeah. And if if my voice sounds a little weird, if you, so we've talked about CrossFit a little bit on this, on the show with Dr. Van Pelt and Fesco. I did Fran this morning. You and did? so I, I got, I got the Fran lungs right now. Ooh, those yeah. are fire lungs in your, I got, I got some fire lungs right now still. And I did it when we're recording right now, it's 4 51 PM right now. I did it. I finished it 10 hours ago and I still have the Oof. Fran cough. The Frank, that's where we go. The Frankoff, yeah. and and they always schedule these workouts during the crisp fall weather. Well, you're you're talking to the guy who schedules the workouts. Oh, you're wow, you're. <laughs> yeah. I did this to myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, well that's on to what, better news. Yeah, on the on the better news, maybe less. Maybe it's more exciting. Maybe it's less exciting. I mean, yeah, maybe you guys like we'll keep talking about this stuff. <laughs> But um, Jay Nicholas Reed, he has a fantastic first name, I must say. Um, well, it's but, technically his middle name. Yeah. Uh, all these reformed guys just have their first name with a, a period and then they're. Well, you can be N. Ravelli Fulweiler. Yep. I'll be P. B. Bell. Those are our theologian was, names. So, you I guys, was, yeah. when, this, when this episode comes out, <clears throat> um, so Nick is N. Ravelli Fulweiler. That's his theologian name. Mine's P.B. Bell. When this episode comes out, post on the comments, what would your theologian name be? So be your first initial, middle name, and last name. I think, I think mine, because my middle name is a last name, it's my mom's maiden name, uh, maybe it'd be more appropriate that I would just be N.R. Because, you know? <laughs> That's right. Isn't that not rated? <laughs> nr fullweiler i mean that would be nr is not rated name. i think in movie stuff so you're not rated fullweiler i'm not rated <laughs> maybe appropriate maybe not i don't know <laughs> i mean it makes sense well all right so on to this episode yeah um <clears throat> yeah so dr reed I, I mean i like that he he wrote this chapter for for rts so that's this is like right down his alley when it comes to research stuff. And so he's, he went to Oxford university, I, I think for both, both an extra master's degree on top of the seminary and a doctorate. And they are both, if I'm not mistaken, in Egyptology and Assyriology. Mm. And so he talks a lot about like these ancient languages outside of Hebrew and it's because he actually can read them. Well, that's important. That's good yeah. to know. So when he's <laughs> talking about this stuff, it's because he actually knows what he's talking about. He's not just like, oh, I, I researched this for this this chapter. Um, this is a lot of his research stuff. So if you guys are reading this, it's it's probably it's not like technical per se. It's just not well known in Christian circles. That's probably the best way to to say this. Where it's not like it's not a hard chapter to read necessarily. It just it assumes a lot of knowledge. Yeah. If you guys are reading this with us and you guys are frustrated when it comes to chapter 21, no, you're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think RTS did a fantastic job with this book. It's not by accident that the authors of each of these chapters have a, a deep expertise and knowledge based on the topics they're writing about. So yeah, yeah. We have good, guys, great confidence in Dr. Reed. Yeah. And if you guys are wondering, like, why do you need ancient Near Eastern background to covenants? And what even is ancient Near Eastern? Ancient Near Eastern is just the area. It's, a, it's not the people group, but it's like the region where the Hebrew people were. So we're thinking Mesopotamia, Samaria, Ju Judah. So that's that whole, that whole big area, Babylon, um, all the big places that you can think of in the Bible. Those, 
those are all relatively within the ancient Near Eastern context, that, that region there. And the reason why it's background to covenant, so part three, so part one was on the um, biblical studies side, so it was exegetical. They're going through biblical texts and trying to establish covenant theology biblically, which is good to start off with. Mm-hmm. And the second part was theological study. So it's what's broad picture? How do we understand some of these things? Historical, historical studies. Historical studies. Yeah. Um, so broad picture, how do we understand covenant throughout church history? Yeah. Um, and so we ended this last episode with Dr. Fesco. When you guys are listening to this episode, so last week with Dr. Fesco with recent theology. So some of the, the current covenant theologians, we ended with Dr. Horton um, yeah. from my seminary. So he's he's written a bunch on covenant theology, taking the best scholarship from the Reformation until now. Uh, and then this one starts, if you guys are wondering, collateral and theological, what on earth does that stuff mean? It just means some like a background contextual stuff. And so when we're thinking of ancient or Eastern background, this is the stuff that was like in the water at this time. Uh-huh. So it's those in um, Egypt, those in Jerusalem, their surrounding neighbors were still kind of part of this of this environment. And so they shared a lot of stuff with them. So it'd be, it'd be a little bit like us in California. We share some similarities with a lot of people on the West coast, generally speaking, if in your, if you're in New York, you share some similarities with those on the East coast. If you're in Florida, you share some similarities with those in the Southeast. And so when we're thinking about that, that's, that's why he's saying this background is it helps knowing what's the background of the people at this time. And does that help us understand the Hebrew scriptures a little bit better, especially as it relates to covenants? Yeah. It's the, People and the places of the Old Testament are in the ancient Near East. We know that pretty well. And it's just basing this off of the context that is outside of Scripture, where where people are living, what they're dealing with, with yeah. um, politically, yep. socially, um, and, and all that stuff, internationally, uh, domestically, um, that, that context plays a huge part in the people that were writing, you know, scripture at the time and the people yeah. that were hearing scripture at the time, even orally. And I think it's important to know that just God speaks to us in human terms that we can understand. Yeah. And that's what a big part of covenants are, even yeah. when he was speaking to Abraham in a way that he could understand covenants based on Abraham's context of how ancient, ancient Near East was accustomed to oaths, covenants. Yep. And the three big line items in this chapter is laws, treaties, and land grants. Yep. Yeah. So if you, yeah, we can we can provide some some context. And so the reason why he goes through these three things is when you look at all the texts that exist at this time, and so some of the big ones, if you guys are wondering, like, what, what's existing? And some of them you might have heard of before. Um, some of them you might not have. But under laws, one of the big ones, and you might have heard of this, is the laws of Hammurabi. And so the reason why they're using this law book is it has what's called either casuistic. I, I'm not sure the, the chapter uses th- these words, but it's, it's kind of the law structure. It's, it's like... Effectively, if this, then this. So if you look through Exodus, a lot of the laws in Exodus, a lot of them are, if somebody does this, then this is the consequence. If this happens, then this is the result. Cause and effect. Yeah, cause, yeah most likely that's where we get causalistic language from. And yeah, so yeah. when we're looking at this and we see these other law books, <clears throat> we don't see a direct one-to-one correlation. And I think Dr. Reed makes that point really well is the biblical authors aren't looking at these other law code sheets and saying, okay, so they have this law. Okay. We'll take this law over here. We'll put it into the Bible. Okay. That's a good law too. This one makes sense. But it's like, like we said earlier, it's, it's the air that they breathed. And so they probably had read this. They knew people who had read this. Mm-hmm. And I think a great point that Dr. Reed makes is in order for you to establish that somebody in the Bible, Moses, Joshua, somebody else, whoever, who's editing some of these things, you have to establish that they themselves could read these texts and had access to these texts. And 
for a lot of these biblical studies things, we just don't know. And so sometimes it's speculation. And a big thing, um, especially with laws, the reason why the law of Hammurabi is so important in some of these conversations is uh, mosaic authorship has been staked on whether or not it's based off of this because it has to do with the time period. Mm. And so when we're thinking, so it's great for, for covenants background for this, but it's also been used in scholarship to either say, no, this is, I think that there's a, there's quote unquote liberal estimates that the old or that the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible <clears throat> that Moses either wrote or helped edit or Joshua helped edit, whoever it may have been, which doesn't do anything to inspiration. It just means there might have been an editor who helped out a little bit under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could be if you can't base it off the law of Hammurabi or some of these ancient law codes, then their assumption is the Bible was written way later by people who weren't actually at this time period, who didn't experience these, who didn't see these things. So, so that's why the debate is important. This. Yeah. Yeah. That's why the debate on this is important. Exactly. Okay. So that's, and if you guys are wondering, like, why is he talking about this stuff? Does this stuff even matter? If, yeah. And not like everybody's reading liberal scholarship, but if you guys, we've talked about him before. If you guys read or hear of Bart Ehrman, anybody else in kind of his camp, they stake like entire claims off of the authorship and the dating of the Bible off of some of these things. So they're mm-hmm. extremely important to know both for the authorship of the Bible and the, about the time period that was written, but also understanding how do we get our laws in the Bible? Were they influenced by something and how do we best interpret the laws? I see. Taking a brief step um, back, just on some important things that I marked before the section that kicks off laws, yeah. it's kind of the introductory non-named uh, section. It, it does say um, classical reformed covenant theology was originally formed prior to our access to the seriological evidence. What do you take of that? That was in the middle of 448. So the, the middle of 448. So <clears throat> with, with a lot of these things, um, so our, what he's effectively saying is our reformers, our confessions, they were all written not mm-hmm. with some of these documents in mind. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of our current scholarship, and he talks about Meredith Klein later on, whose dissertation, a lot of his work that I've read is heavily influenced by this scholarship. But when we're thinking of our confessional documents, um, a lot of of pre-modern scholarship, they didn't have access to these documents because most of them are post like 1880. Uh, And so they're relatively recent in terms of discovery. And especially the vast majority of the current manuscripts that we have, we didn't discover until like 1940. Uh, and so a lot of these things we just didn't have access to for a long time. And so when we're comparing them to this and what, what Dr. Reed is saying, when he's comparing new Eastern, uh, near Eastern background to covenants, <clears throat> um, we have to understand the time that we discovered these, when they were written and how not necessarily to compare them to our confessional standards, but know what is our, what are our confessional standards talking about and do, in a sense, they have to interact with these documents in order to correctly, to correctly interpret the Bible as it relates to a covenant theological understanding of Scripture. So, how does the how does this help the case for reformed doctrine and theology? Yes, yeah, so I think one of the big things that Doctor Reed really, I think, pulls out really, really well in this is the more documents we read and that we discover on the ancient Near East, it actually <clears throat> it aids further in our understanding, uh, understanding of covenant theology. And so we, okay. when you, we've, I think we've talked about it a little bit before. I think Dr. Dr. Van Pelt talked about it a little bit before. Um, Dr. Clark's talked about it a little bit before, <clears throat> but we're thinking of what's called suzerain vassal treaties. So we've said those two words before. So suzerain is like the Lord. Vassal is like a servant people. And Dr. Reed talks about this like in the middle towards the end of the chapter, especially as he's talking about Dr. Klein. Mm -hmm. Um, But when he's talking about these things, these documents actually use that language. And so there's an understanding of a Lord who sets a covenant standard, a covenant book, hands it to the people and says, okay, here's the stipulations 
because you are now my people, here are the things that you must now do, or I have purchased you, here are the things that you must now do. And so we see these things happening in the ancient East, especially in their, in their documents. <clears throat> we look at the Old Testament, New Testament, we see a lot of similarities in language. And so as we see these similarities in language and concepts and the structure of it, we can start looking at this, not just like we can't just, we, so we can say effectively, we're not just randomly applying the covenant label to scripture. It actually has the same structure as these, what are already covenant documents before scripture. That's, so when the, that's, that's where a lot of this stuff helps us understand. It actually plays into covenant theology. So when the early church fathers and the reformers were explaining doctrine, exegesis, all this stuff, they were, I wouldn't say unknowingly, but they were confirming stuff that we've later found yeah, out exactly. to re- confirm what they were saying. Yeah, exactly. So that's, okay. yeah. And there's been, there's been, there's like, there's a joke that effectively theology, as, as we, as we're doing theology, science is catching up. And so with a lot of these covenant documents, as they're getting revealed, covenant theologians, reformed covenant theologians are like, well, obviously that's what the Bible is. As these things come out, we're saying, yeah, we already have an ancient Near Eastern document called the Bible. I see. Because the, the reformers and the early church fathers were relying strictly on just the Bible and just going off of what the Bible is saying. Now we're finding out scripture in the Bible is... Um, also getting uh, proven extra evidence through uh, history, documents, archaeological yeah. findings, yeah. and all and this stuff like, to further validate the Bible. Yeah, and our reformers, they were great what's called classicists, which doesn't mean they were like, oh, I liked one class over another. It means in terms of classical studies. Okay. And so if we look at John Calvin, we look at Martin Luther, a lot of them studied Plato. They studied Aristotle, but they studied third century Greek culture before Christ. So they had a great understanding of kind of New Testament background stuff. And so if you interact with Luther and his New Testament commentaries, if you interact with Calvin and his New Testament commentaries, he has a great understanding of rhetoric, which was huge in ancient Greek culture. And so they're actually in, engaging with culture at that time. They just didn't have access to the text that we don't have for the Old Testament. And so think of what Calvin and Luther are doing for the New Testament, and they have some interaction with the Old Testament in terms of covenant theology, but they don't have access to the texts that surround the Old Testament, even though they're still getting basically the same content. And so think of these ancient or Eastern documents as it relates to the Old Testament as kind of like looking at Plato, Aristotle, Aristotle, Cicero, Marcus Aurelius, like all these big third century BC to first century AD authors and philosophers, Greek culture, uh, academicians or culture shapers. Think of ancient Near Eastern people and those is kind of similar, if that makes sense. So it's what those uh, documents do for the New Testament, these ancient Near Eastern documents do for the Old Testament. Yeah, it's like history and the, and the people in the history have been trying to figure out what's been already put in the Bible from beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, and that's, that's helpful for us to understand. That's, that's what Dr. That's what he's talking about in that quote. And as he goes through this stuff and we realize as Christians, we can look at scientific studies, scientific discoveries, and consistently they portray the world and texts and context and history the way that the Bible does. Yeah, and Jack Collins is good about explaining. Oh yeah, that. yeah. So if you guys haven't listened to, um, yeah, John or Jack Collins, our episode with him and Science of the Bible, it was May sometime. It's towards the end of season two. So if you guys mm-hmm. want to listen to that on how do we understand, how do we relate science to the Bible, it has a lot of bearing on this episode too. Mm. Also, <clears throat> flagged this other part on page four forty nine. The kind of goal of this in which scholars have used the laws, treaties, and land grants of the ancient Near East to contribute to our overall understanding of the biblical covenants. This chapter concludes with some basic observations about the prospects and limitations of such comparative projects. Yep. Yeah. And he even goes later on, he connects 
mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch with yep. kind of relative stuff in this time period. He goes on to talk about scholarship introducing this <coughs> introduces his law section. And then on 450, he compares texts in Exodus with texts in the laws of Hammurabi. Yeah. And so you see why scholars are looking at these two texts and saying, oh, okay, I see some similarities. What must be happening is the Bible must be borrowing from some of these laws, placing them in the Bible, um, and then they make some conclusions based off of that stuff. But what, what I think Dr. Reed is really kind of pushing is a lot of this assumes a lot of the biblical authors that they had access to these texts, like I said earlier, and they spoke the language because the language of these texts is not what we have in Hebrew. A lot of them are either Akkadian or um, there's some of them are older Aramaic. We have some Aramaic in the Bible, uh, but it, dep- it it assumes that there's an understanding of language across this culture, which there may have been, there may not have been. Um, and so we, he, Dr. Reed is, is, is cautioning carefulness around some of these things. Don't assume because in the same period, it's a one-to-one ratio. He's saying, um, yes, there's correlation, but correlation doesn't mean one took from another. It just means they're all in the same area. They're, they're, they're breathing in the same air. They are dealing with the same things. A lot of the same Kings that are conquering regions, either conquered them or, or went through them. And so, um, there's some shared similarities, but it may not be a one-to-one ratio. Mm-hmm. And he uses Exodus 21 verses 28 to 32 as an example. Yeah, the big ox code stuff. To compare, mm-hmm, to compare against the laws of Hamburai. Yeah, Hammurabi. Uh, Deuteronomy as an example. Yeah, so with Deuteronomy... And I apologize if this isn't relevant to the law section, but I'm just going off of memory that I kept seeing him mention Deuteronomy yep, as yep. a basis of comparison or whatever. So yep. what do you? Yeah. So he's, he's going, and he's not going specifically off certain texts, but Deuteronomy, especially they call Deuteronomy very specifically. It's, it's a covenant treaty or a covenant document. And so overall the structure of Deuteronomy it okay. looks like the structure a lot of, of a lot of these law codes of this time period. It's more like you think meta structure. And so all 34 chapters of Deuteronomy, if you break it down chapter by chapter, it's structured and sectioned off like some of these law codes. And this goes humongously into one of the sections that Dr. Reed talks about, especially as it relates under the treaty section and the treaty section for Deuteronomy is humongous because it has to do with the timing. And so if you look at Deuteronomy as it relates to one law code or one treaty or another treaty. So I think there's an Assyrian treaty and the other treaty escapes me for the time for the, um, for right now I'm looking for it, but the other uh, there's one treaty that was like the 13th or 12th century. And there's another treaty that's like the the sixth century and so there's a huge disparity of time and so he's looking at these two treaties and like a lot of scholars look at these two treaties and say if we base it off of the later or the earlier treaty from the 13th century deuteronomy was written in the 12th century then you have mosaic authorship because moses was sometime around this time period versus if you look at the sixth century they think more Josiah, they think more exile or post-exile. And so Deuteronomy was written with an exilic mindset, which has to do with they're trying to get the people to follow the law again versus it being written by Moses himself or edited with people who knew Moses or around Moses. So this is both covenant theology stuff and the structure of it, but also as it relates to authorship and to time or time period of the Bible being written. Mm. At the very end of the law section, he says, the culture of the ancient Near East was certainly more internationally connected through writing than might, some might assume. The re- this reality becomes yeah. even more demonstrable uh, in the following section, which opens up the treaties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I hadn't really, I mean, I kind of heard about this and I thought about this um, and it makes it makes sense. So even in first century what you call epistle writing so you think of paul's epistles in the new testament so the 12 or 13 epistles 
and you look at how they're written and he uses a penman who writes it for him, probably for, for most of them, but how they would have done this. And we know this from first century writings is this document. So the epistle would have been like a, a memory device. So they would have had this kind of folded or like um, folded around a scroll in some sense. Sometimes they had a codex, which is another word for a book, but they would have this tucked away. They'd have the, the document memorized because it was meant to be proclaimed. It was meant to be a spoken oral thing, but the document was there for reference. It was there for if I for forgot something or I gave somebody a copy of it and that now be binding for them. But especially as it relates to oral or written down law treaties or law codes, these would be for you would give a copy of it to another person and that that transaction was looked at as binding. Now that they have this copy of it doesn't mean you don't have an oral code that's the same as his law code, but the transferring of that treaty was you formally agreeing to come into a treaty with somebody else as well as that oral portion of it too, which also bears into covenant theology because that's what Deuteronomy is. If you read the very end of Deuteronomy, it talks about do not add to any of these words. We hear that same yeah. phrase at the end of Revelation, very, yeah. very end of Revelation, do not add to any of these words. That is as explicit language of covenant as you can possibly get. When it says yeah. do not add to these words, that's a covenant document. Yeah. What, is, uh, what does Dr. Reed mean by this um, sentence at the top of 451? A number of theories have been offered to explain the similarities found in the laws of the Mosaic Covenant and those from other cultures in the ancient Near East. These theories often range from direct literary dependence to the concept of ancient Near East legal med meta transitions. Traditions. Traditions, yeah. yep. What does he mean by that? Yeah, so they go on a little bit more. Um, and this has to do with some meta tradition. You can kind of think as like environment stuff. Like what's what are the thoughts? What are the things going around? How are people binding themselves and treaty with one another? How are kings conquering other regions? What do they do when they conquer another region? What's the agreement that they have? How are marriages done at this time period? How are how are property rights given at this time period? How are you? So that's like, those are traditions in this time period. And when he's talking about meta, it's, this is how are all of these things forming the understanding of law at this? So it means what they're not doing yeah. necessarily is looking at one documents, copying all those things for a one-to-one -one ratio, looking at the cat in the hat in one document, copying the cats in the hats and the other document, meta traditions means how are these things done in general? How are law, how are law forms signed in these time periods across different cultures? Because they saw a lot of similarities, which again doesn't mean they're copying each other, just means they've interacted with each other, they've been married, there's intermarriages, there's property rights being sold, they're being bought, there's kings who are conquering. So this time period, that's what meta tradition did. This is just the, this is the water that they're swimming in at this time period. That makes a lot of sense because if we had to write a very important document here in 2021, or yep. there's other important documents that have been written, and let's say someone in three to 4,000 years from now, which I don't think will be still around by then, <laughs> but if, if somebody was reading at the same period, same length, about the same length of time that we're relevant, we're, we're talking about Old Testament writing. Yeah. Um, they, those people would be having to figure out the context of which we're writing. They would be like, okay, they were in a country called the United States. Yep. They had presidents back then. They had states. They had governors. They had weddings that looked like this. They had yep. laws that looked like that. They drove yeah. around in cars. Um, they would under the socio-economic uh, uh, categories of our day. That yeah, would be yeah, completely and that's, different to theirs. Yeah, that's like I mean, effectively, and I know there's, there's some cultural differences within the United States. There's a lot of cultural difference, but in general, if you go from one state to another, you go to one wedding in one state, another wedding in another yeah. state. It's not going to look that different. Yeah, sure. There's cultural differences in some in some parts, and major cultural differences in some parts. But in general, 
You have one man, one woman, a minister of some sort in front, and they're all basically sharing the same vows. And so you can see that across the cultures in some sense, because because we live in this time period, we've done it a certain way. We've seen it done a certain way. That's the same kind of stuff that's happened at this time period. It's, it's like people are doing things a certain way. Laws are being formed a certain way. Treaties are being signed a certain way. And so we read the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that somebody copied another document and wrote in the Old Testament. It's just, this is like, this is the way things are done at that time period. And so it's, and Nick and I were talking about, it's, it's, um, it's, it's God's accommodation to his people. And I know Dr. Reed uses that word, I think pretty specifically within this chapter. And so he's, he's reaching down to make a covenant with his people in language they understand. And they understand yeah. ancient or Eastern context language. And so God uses their context, drops down into history, says, okay, now that you have this, let me give you a covenant document that looks like those that are around you. Not because I'm copying it, but just because that's what's happening at this time period. Yeah. I mean, when I have to talk to my son, who's two years old, I can't be having these deep conversations with him. If I have to explain something to him, I have to go to his level, explain something yeah. in his terms that he can understand with his, and it's, it's pretty much infinitely different when it comes to God speaking <laughs> yeah. to us. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, that, that goes into treaties now. Yep. Yeah. So, and, and treaties are, treaties are interesting too. And uh, I mean, the, the very first two sentences give you a great mm-hmm. definition of it. So says treaties may be considered. So this is the bottom of page three, four fifty three. Says treaties may be considered here in relation to covenants, but of course, much like that, much like the laws considered above, these two do not share a one to one correspondence. A treaty is usually a binding agreement between two or more parties that occurs in an international context. So he's kind of given us a, a right. definition on the front end. And the term, the term in Hebrew, covenant, is not restricted to international contexts. Yep. And it can be employed within them. So yeah, if you guys are looking at this weird Hebrew word and you're like, what is that? How do you say that? It's bereath or depends what they call it spirating. So if you spirate the last word, it's bereath. If you don't, it's bereath. So mm-hmm. effectively, B-E-R-I-T. That's what that word is. Yeah, when so I think learn a little treaties, bit of Hebrew. Yeah, and when I think of treaties, I think of exactly what is it it's saying here, and it's not too different than how we know it today. With yeah. one one country uh, trying to make an agreement with another country. Yeah, or two people making an agreement with yeah. uh, with one person making an agreement with another, and then Doctor Reed does a great job of saying not all covenants in the Bible are treaties because we have one with David and Nathan. We have another one between kings, Abraham and uh, Abimelech and or King Abimelech and uh, Genesis 14 make a covenant of some sorts, um, which that's not a covenant we have with God because God's with us, especially as we think of the covenant of grace is unilateral. So he's making a covenant with us that's unconditional that we can't break, but we'll get further into some of this stuff too, where there are specific types of covenants that are conditional in the sense that there are stipulations that we have to follow, but there's some that we don't, but that's a lot of these things too. That's, that's why some of this background is so necessary. We don't just see covenants in the Bible. We see covenants outside the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's four particular periods that demonstrate these treaties in the ancient near East. And I like this little part here. I like bullet point things to kind of put things (laughs) in categories for me, especially when they're chronological and have dates. It's just how my mind works. So it's on page 453, starts at the oldest going to uh, the most recent. The oldest is 2400 to 2200 BC, texts from the early city-states of Mesopotamia. And then it goes to 1700 to 1600 BC, which is the Amorite text from Mari. Then it goes to 1400 to 1200 BC, text from the Hittites. And then 800 to 600 BC, the Neo-Assyrian treaties. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's just, it's given us a, a good little time context. And so this has to do with dating issues. So based off of where you date, 
where you think the Bible is quote unquote copying or borrowing from covenant or uh, covenant treaties, you'll place it in one of these time periods. And if we're thinking, especially the Pentateuch, generally speaking, we want to put that somewhere on that height, Hittite period, the 1400 to 1200 BC. Okay. It could be anywhere from like 1200 ish BC to 1100 ish BC. It really depends on where you date it, but that has to do with some, some dating stuff in the old Testament too. And then uh, there's a there's a common misconception that legal agreements and treaties had to be written down. So that yeah. when he starts breaking this down, this was interesting. He started really talking about the oral versus the written down. Why uh, why was that important for Doctor Reed to point out? Yeah, and I, I talked a little bit about this before, um, but if you have an oral treaty that's no less binding than a, a written treaty. And he, he really kind of hammers that down. But with a written treaty, you can have a clause in it that you can't change it. And if you have that clause that you shall not change any of the words that within this, if you change it, you broke the covenant, you broke the treaty, and that there are consequences for those actions. And those consequences can be more easily lined out within the treaty form. Where do we say something similar to the written treaty? In Deuteronomy. It has uh, conditions, stipulations, and either consequences or blessings. And you can see these very easily lined out, which is why we see the Deuteron uh, Deuteronomy as a, as a covenant book, because it does this. It says, if this, then this. If you fail this, then this. If you add any of the words to this, to this book, may the consequences of what the sovereign does come upon your head. So a lot of these other documents say a lot of the same stuff. Um, and that's, that's why he's saying we, we can look at written treaties and say that they're binding, but we also can look at, at, at oral spoken treaties because the written treaties are based off the oral treaties. That's what they would have said. It's what they would have been talking about and conversing about. That's what one king would have said to a nation that he just took down. He had an oral treaty with the people, but would write it to make it binding, but no less binding if he just had an oral treaty. And so Dr. Reed kind of really nails this down. Say so we can't just say one is more binding than the other. They have certain characteristics that are specific to one or the other. Is it a little bit like in today's context, someone saying uh, for the oral example, uh, I give you my word, uh, I will do this or a handshake. I'll yeah, I mean, you know. I, yeah, I'd probably, I put it something, something close to a handshake. Okay. Um, in today's world, yeah, if you have a business deal, generally speak, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not even, I, I'm, if I'm, I'm sure we have some lawyers that are listening to our show. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but if if I'm not mistaken, I actually do think a handshake works in the court of law. If I'm not mistaken, I, I don't know where I read that, who I heard that from, mm. but I think a, a handshake, <laughs> I, I think technically it's binding. I've from, from what I've heard. And so if I'm wrong, I'm sure somebody will tell me, but a lot of these things can actually be binding, but it's like when you're a little kid, you're like four or five years old. And like, what's, what's the most binding thing you can possibly think of It's a pinky square. So you go to a friend and you do a little pinky square. And that's like the most binding thing you could possibly think of. You're not really just thinking. saying, yeah, yeah you're not really like written stuff. You're just like, Oh, now you're like, you have to do what I just told you because our pinkies are the most um, the most divine objects on our body or something. We're just saying, I promise. Or when you're a little kid, I've heard, uh, cross my heart, hope to die. I don't yeah. know where the heck that came from. But Stick a needle in my sounds, eye. <laughs> yeah. That kind of stuff. Which is um, terrible. I mean, yeah, I've ever saying that. <laughs> Stick a needle. Yeah, but if you dudes. think about it, that's almost, that's what these things were. Cross my heart, hope to die. Stick a needle in my, that's, that's a treaty. I'm cur I'm cursing myself if exactly. I break it Yeah, to, so to that's, death that's, or pain. Yeah, that's, um, that's a good example. But also, like for me in my professional life and work, um, I work, you know, in medical, and I work with, uh, with, you know, doctors and stuff. And if it's not like every single thing that I say in quick conversations that I'll do for them, I'm gonna write it down and have them sign it. You yeah. know, it's like, hey, I promise that um, I'm gonna come by tomorrow and follow up on that, answer your question. That's yeah, which is just as binding as a written thing. Yeah, and if I didn't do it, he would remember, and he'd be like, "Yeah, that he didn't follow through. He didn't say what he was gonna do." Exactly. Yeah, and and yeah, he can still 
um, he can place consequences on that and say, well, you didn't come, you gave me your word. Therefore the deal is broken or therefore yeah. we're not going to buy this product. He doesn't, yeah. what, what he can't say is like, ah, shoot, you forgot a, you forgot a written thing. This is no longer, I still have to wait for you. He's going to say, no, man, you made, you gave me your word. Yeah. Yeah. So it's based on, uh, the type of conversation you have, because it would be rude to be like, well, did I, did I have that written down? Did you sign it? Like, no one's going to do that. So, yeah, exactly, but, yeah. but for very serious cases that have to be extra documented, official, like a marriage license, that, that is a written. Yeah. And, and we, and again, we see this in Exodus and Deuteronomy when Moses breaks the uh, stone tablets because the people had sinned, how many tablets does the Lord give him after they're broken? He gives them two. Two. Why does he give them two? An extra one in case he breaks it? No. So one of them they actually like they have, and another one, where else do they put where do they put the second one? In the uh in the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant, yeah. There you go. So you have one with the people, one in the mm, ark. The copy, yeah. So you have one with the people, it binds the people. Why do they put the one in the ark? I'm sure if, if there's some people who are listening to this right now, who are screaming at their phones, like, I know what the answer is. Yeah. But they God's put copy. one in the ark because it also binds God. Yeah. It's God's copy. Yeah. So that's, that's why we have two, co- that's why we have copies of these covenants is one is in the ark of the covenant. And then one is with the people It binds them together. I know. I, I think a lot of people probably think that there's two tablets because the first five commandments yeah, were written yeah, yeah. on one and then six through 10 were on the other or something. It's like, but no. that's where, that's where a lot of this ancient recent context plays so much into our favor is that's what they did. One, a King would have one copy and the people would have yeah. another copy. Hence when the Lord comes down, descends to the level of the people accommodates himself. He gives a copy to Moses he says, put the other copy in the ark. And so he binds the people and himself together. Beautiful. Yeah. This is helping bring things together. I mean, I know I knew this chapter was not an accident. I mean, it's here very the oh, people yeah, at RTS sure. are brilliant. They know why they put it in. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so there's a couple people that are really important in this section uh, in treaties. One is uh, Meredith Klein. You're very familiar with Meredith, Meredith Klein. And the other one is Kenneth Kitchen. Yeah, we read. Yeah, we read both of them quite extensively. We read yeah. pretty much everything Klein has ever written, and we read a lot of Kitchen. So, for people that don't know much about Klein or Kitchen in the context of this treaty category, what do they have to say about? Yeah, it? Yeah, so Kitchen is uh, not an American scholar. I, I'm, I'm, he's somewhere in Europe. I forget where. Um, again, there's probably somebody listening to this who knows exactly where he studied or where he was mm-hmm. a professor. Um, but he was a conservative scholar. He worked a lot on ancient or Eastern treaties. Um, Meredith Klein also worked on ancient or Eastern treaties. Klein was, he, he was a professor from like the sixties ish, uh, maybe a little bit before that uh, until uh, 2001 was when he retired. Okay. Uh, so he, he worked <clears throat> with a lot of these and he's, he's extraordinarily well-known at least within this community for his work on treaties and his work on treaties had to do with land grants, had to do with how do we understand conditional and unconditional covenants? How do we understand uh, what's called parallel covenants or parallel blessings, um, which Dr. Reed goes in. This, this goes a little bit too much into the weeds, but it has to do with um, Klein's view of uh, Exodus and the Mosaic covenants. Was the Mosaic covenant purely a gracious covenant? Was a law covenant? Or did it have kind of a combination of both, which had to do with land grants? So he's big in that. And then Kitchen is well known as, uh, he's like an Egyptologist. So he studied a lot of um, Egyptian texts and hieroglyphics, all that stuff. So that's, that's kind of their background. Okay, cool. What about uh, Laura Quick? She's a contemporary scholar. Uh, so I, 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 she's at one of the big universities. She might be at Oxford, if my memory serves me right. Um, but she's a PhD advisor, I, I think, at a, at a European um, like doctoral university for Old Testament. Um, mm-hmm. And she did the uh, she did some 
I, f- I forget uh, futility curses. That's what she did. Um, yeah, which yeah. is on uh bottom of 458 and it goes through some of that stuff. And so she worked on uh the nature's this middle of 458, right after table 217. For quick, the nature of the outside influence on Deuteronomy is much more complex than the direct dependence claim belonging to a dynamic context of orality and ritual rather than a scenario of inventive scribes and really copying and changing cuneiform texts. And cuneiform is just like etching. They took a little stub and they have a little clay tablet and they etch the stub on the clay tablet, which is where we get Akkadian, uh, which is where we get Ugaritic texts, which is kind of outside the Old Testament stuff. And so she works a lot and she helps us understand oral versus or oral and written text too. And this chapter actually first introduces her on the bottom of 457. It says, Laura Quick, who casts uh, Eschar Hayden's succession treaty as one of the vectors of influence on Deuteronomy, questions the idea of Judean scribes possessed yeah. the uh, multilingual and linguistic linguistic uh, competence required to produce text directly dependent on cuneiform texts. Yeah, and that's that's what I was saying before, is in order for you to say that the Old Testament authors were either influenced or copied from some of these outside texts, Quick makes this observation that we're saying they have to know both the language and they have to have access to them. And mm-hmm. I mean, really, neither of them we can prove. And Reed talks about that, especially with a few scholars, one of them being Christopher Hayes, who's an Old Testament professor at Fuller um, in Pasadena. He makes a claim that they're a lot more influenced than Dr. Reed thinks we have evidence for. There's just like, we don't have any hard evidence to say that these authors knew or had access to any of these texts. So it's really hard to make a correlation saying, oh yeah, they were influenced if they can't read it. Yeah. And then the... um... It looks like it might be the final person he mentions in this section of um, treaties. Uh-huh. When Noel Weeks questions the validity of the perspective that the covenant forms developed simultaneously across the ancient Near East. Yeah. Um, and so this, this just has to do with yeah, how similar are different ones. Do you, see, do you see dissimilarity between some of these covenants? But you see a lot of similarity. And so that's what... Uh, Dr. Reed is doing throughout this chapter is he's, he's kind of weaving a fine needle through um, covenant history, not covenant history, we think of covenant history, but like actual covenants in different contexts history. He's weaving a fine needle saying, yes, there's similarities, but not as much as you think. Yes, there's dissimilarities, but not as much as you think. Mm-hmm. And then this last section, land grants. I actually really like that section because he yeah. brought up um, a lot of the covenants that we first talked yep, about yep. in the beginning of our season, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic. Yep. Um, those are have some great significance in land grants. So before I bring out some like highlighted texts or specific questions, I'll let you kind of just unpack the land grants with what you find to be necessary. Yeah, so... I mean, I can do a too long, didn't read version, like a spark note version of this. And land grants is uh, based upon faithfulness was land granted to the patriarchs. So when we think of Abraham, David, Moses, was a land given to them because they were faithful to whatever it is, or tends to be Dr. Klein's view. And it tends, I mean, this is closer to my view too, is a land grant what's called more typological? Is a land grant something where faithfulness was established upon the Abrahamic covenant? And so the unconditional element of grace was given through Abraham. And then that covenant is undergirding the Mosaic covenants. And so you see the law comes in with the Mosaic covenants. And Dr. Klein talks about this in, in Dr. Reed's section on land grants where Dr. Klein saw, he saw two strands. He saw one strand that was unconditional, that grace elements, but he also yeah. saw a land grant in the sense of if they followed to the T the law, then they would be not, they would not just be given the land, but they would stay in the land. And so the land would be granted to them in that sense. Yeah. But he made this case and Dr. Dr. Klein makes the case and I'm, I'm convinced by it, but based off the, the biblical testimony that this typological obedience, this 
typological land grants, which sounds like a lot of big words, but all that means is this, this time period, even though they're in the covenant of grace because of Abraham and the covenant of works, which is, you can call it re-given, re-established with Moses, is not to give them the land necessarily. It's meant to point them saying, you can't do this stuff. I've already given you the covenant of grace, but this land grant is meant to point you to, I'm going to give you this, even though you don't deserve it. You're not yeah. going to stay in it because you're faithless. And this yeah. is supposed to point you towards the land that you're not going to lose. And the land that you're not going to lose is that perfect Canaan. That's heaven. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's kind of where this land grant stuff comes into. Are they, are they given this land because of past faithfulness? Is this land more typological? Does it point to a heavenly land? We see some of that language in Hebrews 4, especially as it relates to Joshua and Canaan being the place of rest because they don't stay in Canaan. They get pushed out, pushed into exile after the kings. And so we see a lot of this stuff kind of pulling around, which again, directly affects our understanding of covenants. Mm. And then I, this section brings out maybe my favorite uh, explanation of covenants in the Bible uh, when it talks to when it talks about Abraham's vision uh, that God gives him yep. about going through the middle yep. of two animals. Oh yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah, with Jeremiah. Yeah, the very very end of this Jeremiah thirty four, where um, yeah the the vision with Abraham in Genesis fifteen, and literally every ancient or Eastern person is expecting Abraham to walk through yeah. the torches. But when you read the biblical record, what does Genesis 15 say? Who walks through it? God. The Lord. And what does that mean? You see it both in ancient and Eastern texts, which talk about this. And that's, that's explicitly a, a political treaty. And so when Israelites are reading this text or hearing this text pronounced to them, they're thinking political land. They're thinking one person's about to conquer us or is giving us this land. <clears throat> and then we see a lot of the same language in Jeremiah 34, there's a long quote at the, in the middle of the last page, 465, that uses exactly the same language that we see in other ancient or Eastern texts. Really, really, really further establishing, grounding, pounding into us. It's like the Lord is yelling at you. I have made a covenant with you. I put it on myself. And I, 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 got it. I, I loved the last sentence, the last two sentences, or last three sentences, I guess, of page 465. It says, in Genesis 15... The Lord is taking all the obligations on himself. Covenant. May he be cursed. May he die if the covenant is violated. And you're thinking, like, you know, I know. Does the Lord violate any covenants? No. No, he doesn't. Can't. But it, he can't. crazy. And I love how he uses this. As the New Testament teaches, the unthinkable happened at Calvary. When God was cursed and died for his people. God, the son was treated as a covenant breaker. And you know why? Because God, the son walked through the torches. Yeah. Which is like, when I read that last sentence, my mind just like blew. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. He took on what he didn't deserve and we deserve. Exactly. Which is, which is why this context around the Bible surrounding it, talking about covenant treaties, law codes can get kind of into the weeds and you're wondering why does this all matter to read the very last paragraph of page 465. And you're like, Oh, he was treated as a covenant breaker, not randomly or esoterically because you can very truly say who was it who walked through the torches in Genesis 15. It was a pre-incarnate Jesus. He made this covenant with us. He was treated as the covenant breaker so that you listen to this right now will be treated as the covenant fulfiller. He took on our curse that we deserve for breaking the covenant and he can't break the covenant because he's perfect, but he took on our, our penalty. Yep, exactly. And so I, I thought um, it was a great way to end this, this chapter. Yeah. And I, th- I think, too, one more point. I mean, that's such a good way to end the episode, but I, I feel like it's also a good point to mention that 
just for our context today, if you read like the vision in Genesis 15 with Abraham and the, um, God going through the two animal parts, I think what's also important to, to remember is when we're reading scripture, like for example, Genesis 15, you know, Abraham talking about uh, the vision that Abraham got with God going through the two animal parts. Uh, if we read it in the context of we know things happening today with you know, oaths, treaties, that covenants, that kind of thing. We're going to be like, what on earth are they talking about? Yep. I, I don't even know if they're talking about a covenant. Yep. Like, what are they talking about? But yep. but we have to read it in the context of the people when it was written. And Precisely, yeah. If, if you read it back then, you'd be like, holy cow, this is a huge deal. Exactly, I know exactly yeah. what God is talking about. Yeah, you can almost like put yourselves in their shoes, like watching a movie. And the movie has this like massive twist. And you're looking at us like, that's not what I expected when they're reading this stuff or they're hearing this. You're like, that's not what's supposed to be happening. Abraham's supposed to be walking through. And then they're thinking, oh my gosh, Yahweh, the Lord covenanted himself. He's taking the curse on himself. This covenant is not on us. This is unconditional. Yeah. And then, yeah, you point towards the future when, when Christ goes to the cross, you see it actually happen. Yeah. Yeah, so hopefully, hopefully this explanation helped you guys a little bit. I thought, again, as, as we say over and over and over again, a lot of these chapters, I, I, I don't know a better way in 18 pages, technically, to explain ancient and Eastern backgrounds to covenants in a way yeah. better than Dr. Reed did. This is, this is a great chapter. I think a lot of people who don't know this background might mm-hmm. skip this chapter and say, oh, I, can, I don't need this information. But this is huge information to understand, put your feet into the shoes of an Israelite or the sandals, I guess. I was going to say sandals. <laughs> yeah. Put your, put your feet into the shoes of a, into the sandals of an Israelite. See ancient Eastern history, the Bible through their lens, with their eyes. And it opens up. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a great way. I don't know what else to say this. That was a good way to probably close the chapter. And I think for an, for you guys to catch up with us on the next chapter, we're going to be going to chapter 22, Covenant and the Second Temple Judaism. Yep. It's going to yep. be Dr. Peter Lee. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, it'll be Nick and I next time on chapter 22, Covenant and Second Temple Judaism. If you're like, what on earth is that? We'll explain it. We'll explain what Second Temple Judaism. You're like, I didn't know there's a Second Temple. You'll learn what the Second Temple is, why there's a Second Temple. So hopefully this helps. This is a lot of intertestamental stuff. So for the time of the destruction of the temple to where they reestablished it um, before Jesus' time. So hopefully that helps wow. you guys out a little bit. I have an idea just to see if people actually are listening to our show the whole way through. Yeah. We won't post this on Twitter, but I'll just verbally say it. If you have specific questions on the next chapter uh-huh. that we are just talking about, post them on either Twitter or Instagram. Technically, you could email us to guiltgracepod at gmail yeah. and ask us these questions that you want to know based on that topic. And we'll, we'll add them to the, uh, to the episode. Yeah, I'll even, I'll even throw a sweet little, sweet little deal with this. The first person, if you guys are still listening to this right now, the first person to email us a question, we'll send you a book. No way. Way. Okay. Cool. You're still listening to it at the end. <laughs> You got a little sweet deal. So we'll see who actually does this. Yep. Well, cool. Yeah. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Hopefully you guys learned a little bit of the background and we will see you guys next week with covenant and second temple Judaism. So hopefully you guys look forward to that and be on the lookout. Also this week we have on book club, both doctors Ross and Lanier. So Dr. William Ross from RTS Charlotte and Dr. Greg Lanier from RTS Orlando on their new Crossway volume called the Septuagint. So you guys get to learn a little bit more about Septuagint. We had Dr. Ross on in season two talking about Septuagint, but they actually wrote a book on Septuagint. And we have, I have to say, the best giveaway we've ever had for this book. Because if we're not just giving away this book, we're giving away more. I don't even, where else are we giving away? You, you'll, they'll, I'll tell you after this, but they'll learn, they'll learn when we, uh, when we announce it. Nice. Yep. We'll keep you guys hanging. Yeah. A little cliffhanger. So yeah, we will, 
We will see you guys on Thursday. And again, for Promises of Fulfillment next week. Peace. Thanks, guys. Bye. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, uh, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing and, uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>